Hey guys, and welcome to a new episode. This is your host, Mohammed Halaiba. We are continuing our project as promised with the Radiology Review Podcast. I have taken my board and hopefully I don't have to retake it again. But as promised, I am planning to continue with this project because I feel it's extremely, extremely important for us radiologists to have review material for our exams that are audible, that we can do while working, driving, exercising, or even walking our dogs. Before we get started with the GU review, I would like to reflect on the board exam and give my experience in short summary. The exam interface was very smooth. Questions were as you would expect for the ABR board exam. Some were fair, some were not fair. Some were asking you know, specific values that were not even accurate according to the ACR references. But overall, the experience, I think it was positive. I did not like the fact that it was a three-day test. I was exhausted by day two, and I just wanted to be done. I would have preferred to have condensed the three days into two days and not have to had to take one hour break between the AM and the PM session. But given that we didn't have to travel and given... COVID situation, I think overall it was a smooth experience. Things that I would have done differently, knowing what the ABR content focuses on, I would have studied nuclear medicine all the way to the day of the test, meaning I would have read that chapter of whatever review resource I would be using the last week before the exam, as well as the non-interpretive skill material, because there's so much material on nuclear medicine. Finally, before we get started, please, guys, if you find this podcast helpful, take a minute to write a review, email us back, and tell us how you feel. If you have any feedback, please let us know so we can change anything that you don't think is suitable and update our podcast. This is an ongoing project, a personal project of mine, and I'm looking to improve it. So please give us feedback, give us reviews on your favorite podcast resource, and spread the word. Thank you. For the next upcoming episodes, we'll focus on GU pathologies, including OB-GYN-related pathologies. We'll start with the first question regarding imaging features of angiomyolipoma. So on ultrasound, what we see, we see a well-demarcated hyperechoic mass. Obviously, angiomyolipoma contains fat, and that explains the hyperechogenicity in the kidney and this lesion arising in the renal cortex. Again, the cortex is dark in the kidney and will have an echogenic mass that is well-defined in the cortex. On CT scan, again, we see a heterogeneous, well-marginated mass with macroscopic fat. Schistosomiasis increases the risk of what type of bladder cancer? Schistosomiasis increases the risk of squamous cell cancer. This is also related to chronic or indwelling Foley catheter, and we would see bladder wall calcification again. Schistosomiasis increases risk for squamous cell bladder cancer. Additionally, suprapubic catheter or chronic suprapubic catheter will also increase the risk for squamous cell cancer. The imaging feature of schistosomiasis on imaging is we have calcifications or coarse calcifications in the bladder. T2 signal characteristics of the uterus. So if starting from the middle of the uterus and the endometrial canal, if you think that it's the endometrial canal, it should have fluid, so it would be T2 bright. 
Now the next layer is the junctional zone or the zone of myometrium and this is a very dense as we would expect for regular muscles to be T2 dark. Again, the junctional zone is T2 dark signal adjacent to the endometrial canal. This is important because it kind of looks like compacted muscle of the heart, but this is the junctional zone and it's the first zone adjacent to the endometrial canal. Finally, the outer layer of the myometrium is relatively less T2 hypointense compared to the junctional zone. Again, junctional zone, outer myometrium, and endometrial stripe. Endometrial stripe is T2 bright. Junctional zone is really T2 dark and outer myometrium is kind of T2 dark but not very dark compared to the junctional zone. The role of this is increased thickness of the junctional zone is associated with adenomyosis. We said previously on multiple episodes that adenomyosis is basically endometrial tissue within the myometrium. What it's different, it's important to distinguish it from endometrioma, which is endometrial tissue within the ovary. The ovarian tissue is hormonal responsive, so we will see pain and bleeding throughout the period based on the cycle. The endometrial tissue in the myometrium, which is adenomyosis, is not responsive to hormone. Key imaging feature is junctional zone thickness of greater than 12 millimeter. Typically, you would want it less than 8 millimeter. 8 to 12 is questionable for adenomyosis. Difference between calcial diverticulum and a cyst calcial diverticulum would communicate with the collecting system, can have a tiny, tiny communication with the collecting system or the renal calyx, but there is a communication with the collecting system. As you can imagine, because the content is not really cyst, which would contain just simple fluid, the calcial diverticulum would contain urine, and so it is prone to complication of urinary stasis, mainly formation of stone again. Calcial diverticulum, it's a cystic structure or outpouching of the urinary calyx into the cortex and it is prone to renal stone formation. Salpingitis ischemica nodosa, again salpingitis ischemica nodosa, this is an inflammatory and nodular formation involving the salpinx or the fallopian tube and they usually show it in fluoroscopic imaging where there are numerous nodular inflammatory changes around the fallopian tube. This is a common cause of failure of conception and due to obstruction or inflammation and scarring of the fallopian tubes. It really has a characteristic imaging presentation, so it's important to at least Google it once. You are shown a CT scan, excretory phase of the bladder with hypodense thickening along the superior lateral margin. What's the differential? What is typically shown is a sessile mass, otherwise it would be looking like a pedunculation, but the tricky presentation would be a sessile mass along the lateral aspect of the bladder wall, and you could think it's decompressed bladder, but it is asymmetrical, and that's the key thing, that this would be bladder cell carcinoma. Most common type is the transitional cell cancer. Again, felon defect or thickening of the bladder wall that is asymmetric in a decompressed bladder should key you to considering bladder cell or transitional cell cancer. This is a easily testable question and it, it's a tricky question. Horseshoe kidney are most susceptible for having which type of kidney cancer? Horseshoe kidney is associated with renal carcinoid. So again, horseshoe kidney, they get renal carcinoid. This is the most likely tumor they will get. Obviously, 
Overall, clear cell is the most common, but patients with this congenital anomaly are most susceptible to having carcinoid tumor. Obviously, here I'm talking about carcinoid tumor of the kidney. Again, renal carcinoid is seen in patients with horseshoe kidneys. Imaging features of gestational trophoplastic disease. Another name for it is hydatiform mole, which can be partial or full mole. Partial mole is associated with fetal parts. On ultrasound, the characteristic description is snowstorm appearance. What we see, we see thickening of the placenta with cystic changes and peripheral vascularity. These cystic changes would describe the snowstorm appearance. Again, snowstorm appearance of the uterus relates to the thickened placenta with cystic changes and peripheral abnormal vascularity seen in hydatiform mole or gestational trophoplastic disease. What is XGP or xanthogranulomatous polynephritis? This is a chronic superative granulomatous infection of the kidney in the setting of chronic renal obstruction due to a stone. Again, chronic stone leads to a superative or perlin infection of the collecting system. The kidney is typically dilated uh, and not enhancing compared to the other kidney. Again, XGP, chronic superative infection of the kidney in the setting of obstruction. Duplication of the collecting system. Key features. Now, when we're talking about the lower pole ureter, the way I think of it is the lower pole ureter is shorter. That's why it starts on the lower pole to begin with. And so when it connects to the bladder, because it's shorter, it will connect slightly superiorly and along the lateral wall of the trigon. Again, if you remember that the kidneys are lateral to the bladder, and remember that the lower pole ureter is in the lower pole because it's shorter and needs to reach the bladder, then you can figure out that it would connect along the superior and lateral edge of the trigon. Now, the upper pole is completely the opposite. So the upper pole ureter is the longer ureter, and so it would connect, because it's longer, it would connect inferior and medial as well. Now, they're each type of ureter, the upper pole and lower pole is associated with unique complications that can be tested. The upper pole ureter, which we said upper pole because it's the longer one, can be complicated by obstruction. The way I remember it, it's because it can kink because it's so long. Now, the lower pole ureter, as we said, it connects superiorly and laterally, and it is prone to reflux. Presentation of pelvic congestion syndrome. This is a clinical diagnosis. Presents with non-cyclical chronic pelvic pain caused by dilated veins in the uterus, broad ligament, and ovarian plexus. Again, even though we'll see those veins dilated on ultrasound or CT scan, the diagnosis is clinical. Critical size of AML that predisposes to Hemorrhage, when AML reaches 4 cm, there is an increased risk of hemorrhage due to aneurysmal changes within the vasculature. Again, 4 cm is the cutoff point for embolization or management of AML. There is a high chance that it will bleed. Renal medullary cell carcinoma. This is a medullary carcinoma typically affects adults with sickle cell disease or sickle cell trait, and it is a very aggressive process. Again, medullary carcinoma commonly seen in kids or adults with sickle cell disease or trait. What is lead pipe sign? Now, this is a GI question, really not GU, but anyway. Lead pipe sign, 
is a classical barium enema finding in patients with chronic ulcerative colitis. What we see, we see complete loss of haustral marking in the affected colon, and it will appear as smooth-walled cylinder, and we will see contrast within that cylinder. Direct versus indirect hernias or inguinal hernias. Indirect is the most common, and that is lateral to the epigastric vessels. Again, indirect hernia is more common. It is lateral to the epigastric vessels, and it goes into the scrotum, and it is due to persistence of process vaginalis. Again, it is indirect, so it goes through the inguinal canal. It's indirect. The naming sounds, I think, counterintuitive because you would think if it's direct, it goes through the inguinal canal. But it's indirect because it takes the longer path to herniate going through the canal and it will go into the scrotum. It is much more common than direct hernia and it is due to persistence of process vaginalis and can be seen in adults or elderly. It's much more common. Direct hernia is a hernia medial to the epigastric vessels, and it's basically directly through a weakness of the transversalis fascia herniating above the inguinal ligament. Again, direct is less common, and it's directly through a fascial defect or weakness. Indirect is much, much more common in all age groups, and it goes into the scrotum due to persistent process vaginalis. Difference between color Doppler and power Doppler color Doppler would give us both direction and flow. It is obviously less sensitive to movement. Power Doppler is excellent for telling us if there is flow, but it does not tell us the direction. Obviously, it is more sensitive because of that. Again, color Doppler gives us the red and blue colors, which will tell us the direction. And power Doppler just tells us if there is flow or not. What is tubular ectasia of retis testis? These are cystic changes near the mediastinum of the testis, commonly bilateral but asymmetric. These are delicate tubules located in the hilum of the testis or the mediastinum of the testis, and it functions in carrying the sperm from the seminiferous tubules into the efferent ducts. Again, when they're dilated, we call them tubular ectasia of retis testis. What is the differential for striated nephrogram? Now, this, there is a broad differential. Key things to remember that can be normal in pediatric patients. In adults, if it's bilateral versus urinolateral, can guide the differential. If it's unilateral, we can think of cancer, radiation nephritis, or obstruction, or trauma. If it's bilateral, can be pyelonephritis, it can be infarcts from multifocal disease, it's really a broad differential. In an adult, it would tell you that there is something wrong with the kidney. Imaging features differentiating focal adenomyosis from leiomyoma or a fibroid. If you remember in the beginning of the episode, we talked about thickening of the junctional zone, particularly on the posterior aspect of the uterine wall. Greater than 12 millimeter would be consistent with adenomyosis. We said adenomyosis is endometrial tissue within the myometrium. Finally, how to distinguish between focal adenomyosis, meaning focal endometrial tissue within the muscle, from a fibroid or leomyoma. Imaging features are really very similar. Both have low T1 and T2 signal, and the key feature is the margin adenomyosis will have because its infiltration of the muscle would have indistinct margins compared to the sharp margins of the fibroid. We'll end with this question. What is the most common intratesticular neoplasm? That is seminoma. 
The key feature of seminoma is it's a very, very radiosensitive. Again, seminoma is the most intratesticular neoplasm, and it is very radiosensitive.